0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Sarah Partial Perry. Got the crew here with you. <laughs> okay, so it's February. It's a leap year. I was thinking about this the other day. What's up with leap years? Why do we have them? Why is it that every four years we get this additional day in the month of February and we have 366 days? I don't days like it. I year? don't like it. Really? You don't like it?
1: No. I already don't like that there's not, like, the same amount of days in every month. Yeah. It seems annoying. And then 29 is an annoying number. It's and actually
2: a great, great observation. I yeah. mean, we don't have – we can't even standardize daylight savings time. <laughs> yes. Right? So the time's not consistent. The month numbers are not consistent. <laughs> and now we have every four years an extra day in February, which simply means we've got to work more.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Another day of work. Bizarre. Exactly I don't it. know who came up with this system. I'd like to talk to them. I about don't know it. either. It's, uh... You didn't look it up? Well, I was hoping you guys knew off the top of your head. <laughs> oh, I can hold on. I can Google it. Why I, do we I have I looked it a up, but I, I wanted to remain ignorant so you guys could inspire me and bring your wisdom. But...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so here's a riddle Is a child born on February 29th? Only celebrating a birthday every four years.
0: So I have a friend. Well, I shouldn't say a a close friend. It's a friend of my sister's that they've lost touch with, but whose birthday (laughs) is on leap day was born on February 29th and they celebrate on the 28th. But I think would have more of like a blowout party on Leap Year, which Every I four would years. Do. Like yeah. that's a pretty good excuse to every four years have a massive party. That is actually a plot point in The Pirates of
2: Penzance, written by Gilbert and Sullivan. So if you guys are musical nerds, okay,
1: it is actually <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Lauren is, but she doesn't like to admit it. <laughs> so
1: now, we, now we've just outed her as being a musical. Oh, nerd. No, oh <laughs> no. I deny it. I deny oh, it. Lauren, I'm not going to let you live that oh, one I down. deny it. The
2: protagonist has a birthday on February 29th. And mm. so there's some debate over his actual real age.
1: So. OK, I Googled it. OK. Um, what does Google say? This is LiveScience.com. Yes. Accurate. It, it says it takes 365 days uh-huh. and a quarter. For the sun to go all the way around the earth. Yep. So we have to, every four years, make up for that quarter day to make sure that the sun oh, makes the exact
0: I, same full yeah. circle. I guess yeah. that makes sense. Interesting. Couldn't we just make the days a little longer? Like add just yeah. a couple of minutes here and there? Yeah. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> So confusing. All right. Well, Lauren, let us know. What do we have queued up today? You've already given us the facts from Google on daylight. I can't believe you asked the question. You didn't know the answer. I I really thought one of you was going to know the answer.
1: So I was like, I'm going to be wowed by their knowledge.
0: And look at that. Have you ever met us?
1: (laughs) Up on today's Problematic Women, a women's basketball team in Massachusetts forfeited a game against a team with a male. What does this mean for Title IX? Plus, are embryos children? Alabama's Supreme Court says so. And where do Trump's legal challenges stand? We explain. And
0: as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic
1: woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All
0: right, let's get to it. Our first story today is taking us up to my home state of Massachusetts, where I'm honestly not surprised this scenario played out. I thought you claimed Georgia now. No, well I claim a lot of states <laughs> but I mean Massachusetts is where I was yeah. born some yeah. and you
1: have just that Massachusetts attitude so was, you know
0: <laughs> only when I'm driving <laughs> well so there's a high school girls basketball team up in Massachusetts that decided to forfeit a game earlier this month after they were competing playing against another team that had a male athlete on the team and they forfeited after that male athlete in Injured one of the women on their team. So the game was between Collegiate Charter School of Lowell and Kipp Academy. These, again, they're two Massachusetts high schools. Kipp Academy had a male who identifies as a female on their basketball team. And then the female player from Collegiate Charter School of Lowell, she was wrestling with this male player for the ball. And her back got hurt in the process. There's a video of her that Riley Gaines shared on X. And you can see this player like on on the court holding her back, obviously in pain, not able to get up. So two other players had also been hurt from the charter school earlier in the game. It's unclear if they were hurt by that male or not but they reach halftime and the coach of collegiate charter school said you know what we're going to forfeit this game we can't afford for any more of our players to get hurt and players were expressing concerns it seems in light of there being a male on the other team that hey we don't want to get hurt they had playoff games coming up they're like we cannot afford to lose Any more players. Well, it's worth noting that in the state of Massachusetts, a student can play on a team that is consistent with the student's bona fide gender identity. That's according to the Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association Handbook. So, Sarah, what do we know about how many other states have? similar policies to this one that Massachusetts has that says, if it's your bona fide gender identity, you can play. Yeah. Well, unfortunately,
2: over half of the states in the country right now allow participation by gender identity as opposed to biological sex. There are 23 states in the country that restrict the participation of transgender athletes and require participation by biological sex. And of course, if Massachusetts had followed with that sort of, you know, precedent from the other states, they would not be faced with a situation like this. And if you haven't seen the video, I encourage everybody to visit X and do a very simple search for it because it really is astonishing to see the difference in not only the size Mm -hmm. but the strength of this man identifying as a woman wrestling the ball away from a biological girl and knocking her to the ground where she does not only slam her back against the ground but hits her head Mm. against the ground. So after seven of these athletes were injured, the coach made a determination that they were just going to forfeit. We're going to see more of this. There are going to be more reported incidents. We've seen the footage of the high school uh, lacrosse player getting her teeth knocked out by a biological male. We've seen a girl go down with a concussion in another state in a volleyball game because she was playing against a biological male. These are not one-off incidents. In fact, these are more often the rule than not. But this is, of course, what follows when you ditch common sense and basic scientific reality to advance a woke liberal agenda and appease a very small and vocal minority. We're going to see more of it, not less of it.
1: And I think it's such a good point that you said it's a small but vocal minority. Mm -hmm. The majority of parents do not support these policies.
2: No, and about 70 percent of all Americans, that's Democrat, Republican, independent or non-registered, actually support separating biologically by sex male and female athletic teams. Why? Because of course we have 50 years of civil rights law on the books under Title IX that indicates that was an appropriate separation in
0: the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Which leads us right into the conversation of Title IX. We yeah. covered this a lot, Sarah. You did such an amazing job. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise on that so much. Last year as we talked about the Biden administration's attempt to change the definition of sex within Title IX. Yeah. What's the latest in that fight? Yeah, so if you guys
2: remember, there were two rules. One was the very big, very expansive rule on all applications of Title IX, including bathrooms, locker rooms, scholarship programs, extracurricular activities. And then there was a separate athletics rule that was released about a year later. That athletics rule required all schools to engage in some kind of a calculus between sort of these educational, legitimate educational objectives and advancing equity and equality for trans students. Now, you see what an untenable situation that puts every school administrator in. If we get this balance wrong, if we're worried about girls getting their teeth knocked out, but we exclude transgender, using air quotes, girls, um, from these teams, we're going to be facing a discrimination suit either way. So it puts these schools in an untenable position. It did not provide them with guidance. And it was a way of saying, you keep can't eliminate trans participation in athletics But we're going to leave that calculus up to you. You decide what's a legitimate educational objective and what's not. Now, this rule has been delayed no fewer than four times. In fact, they started saying that they were going to release the rule in May of last year. That didn't happen. Then it pivoted to October for another deadline. That didn't happen. Now we don't think these are going to be ready even in time for March. And that's because the Education Department only recently sent this rule over to the Office for Management and Budget. Now, that's the White House rubber stamp office. They have to go through any rule from any federal agency and say, all right, you did an appropriate cost-benefit analysis. This is supported by law. We approve. They'll send it back to the Department of Education. And then Congress, both chambers, get 60 days to advance what's called a Congressional Review Act challenge. Two-thirds of each chamber, the upper and lower chamber, can either thumbs up or thumbs down this rule. And in the unlikely event that they thumbs down this rule, it won't be published. And it will be as if this rulemaking had never transpired in the first place. Now, do I think that's going to happen? No. But Do you need
1: two-thirds of both the House and the Senate? Or can yes, you just
2: do two-thirds of the House? House and the Senate for a CRA challenge, which is a very high hurdle based on the composition of both of these chambers. So We don't think at this point it's going to be released and out for circulation until probably August or September. Now, conveniently, that would coincide with, A, the beginning of the school year, and B, prior to midterm elections Mm -hmm. or major Mm -hmm. elections this year. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of delays on this. And there's no statement about the athletic rule. We don't know if the athletic rule is going to be combined with the bigger rule. We don't know if they ditched it because they couldn't deal with 200,000 comments. We don't know what's happening with the athletic rule. So how it looks right now is anybody's guess, because we haven't seen what's been sent over to the White House for review.
0: If the Biden administration were to succeed in changing the definition of sex within Title IX, could another administration come in and pretty easily... Change it back?
2: Not easily. Unfortunately, what that means is they have to go through the rulemaking process all over again. And here's how I know this, because (laughs) when I was in the Trump administration and I was at the Department of Education, their Office for Civil Rights, we engaged in a Title IX rulemaking. And it is laborious. You have to meet with stakeholders. You have to consider every comment that comes through the portal. You have to do a cost analysis. You have to go through the law up, down, and sideways. It is not as easy as saying well i 'm just going to revoke it mm-hmm. because once this rulemaking takes place it 's on the books until another administration has to go through this laborious process all over again. Now, what could happen in the interim is we see the Supreme Court strike down what 's called chevron deference, mm-hmm. and that is a long standing about sixty to seventy year old tradition of giving a ton of power to regulatory agencies and saying, all right, your interpretation of the rule sounds good. And because you're applying the rule and you're the agency that's tasked with enforcing the rule... We're just going to accept your interpretation. Well, there's a big case right now that is currently called Loper Bright Enterprises, great name, by the way, that is ultimately going to determine whether or not the Supreme Court revokes Chevron and overturns something that people have been, and specifically conservative legal scholars, have been requesting go the way of the dodo for years. Why? Because it allows administrations like the one at present to use regulatory agencies to just kind of make their own interpretations of of the law. Mm. And I give you Title IX.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to be any problems with that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Sarah, thanks for this update. It's helpful. I wish that there was more positive news, though. This is nerve-wracking. It's like, it is. Okay, a lot could shift and change in the coming months, and this could be a multi-year journey ahead of us that we have left to fight for women's sports. Oh, there's absolutely no question. And that's why these
2: 23 states that have passed sex-separated sports laws have actually done themselves a real service because the women and girls in those states are protected. Once you see that clash of federal law through Title IX and state law, that's going to present Really a prime opportunity for the Supreme Court to go, you know, this is a big federalism question. We have to settle whether or not the federal government's interpretation or state law, democratically enacted, is the appropriate read on this. Mm -hmm. Can a state make sure it protects its own woman? Well, the short answer is yes, but that's going to be a long journey to finally get that clarification from the Supreme Court. Wow. Wow.
0: All right, well, stay tuned because up next we are bringing you the latest on what an Alabama Supreme Court says in relation to. What is a child? But first, I want to tell you all about a great resource for conservative women. The Network of Enlightened Women sees the challenges that conservative women are up against on their college campuses all over America. From liberal professors to finding friends on campus, it can be a really lonely place to be a conservative woman. This is what inspired news president Karen Lips to write You're Not Alone, the Conservative Woman's Guide to College. Readers will get to know more than 20 college students and alumni's stories as they talk about what they experienced on their college campuses and offer some real practical advice. With these stories, Karen Lips identifies problems on campuses and provides practical tips on how conservative women can thrive in these environments. This college guide covers the many struggles and real-life situations that college women will face, do face, whether they're freshmen or seniors. Empowering these women will help them become more effective advocates for conservative ideas during and after college. You're not alone. The Conservative Woman's Guide to College is available now for purchase on Amazon. You can buy a copy today for yourself, maybe a friend, daughter, granddaughter, anyone that you know that is up against these challenges on a college campus. You can learn more by visiting the Network of Enlightened Women and the Conservative Women's Guide to College. You can visit their website at enlightenedwomen.com. Org. Also, be sure to go back and listen to our conversation with Karen Lips about her book. We were delighted to have Karen on the podcast just a couple weeks ago, so make sure to check that out. So this might be the best thing I have read all week long. This is from the Alabama Supreme Court majority opinion in a very, very recent case, It reads, unborn children are children without exception based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other accelerated characteristic. This is by Justice J. Mitchell of the Alabama Supreme Court. He wrote this majority opinion. This is an opinion issued in response to a wrongful death case brought by three different couples. The couples had frozen embryos at a fertility clinic in Alabama. The embryos were destroyed in an accident at the clinic. So then they brought a case. So, Sarah, explain what exactly these couples were arguing in this case. Why were they saying that the destruction of our embryos equates to wrongful death?
2: Yeah. So, Alabama has something called the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. This is a case called LePage versus Mobile Infirmary Clinic. And the question in front of the Alabama Supreme Court was whether an unborn child kept in a cryogenic nursery is entitled to the status of a person under Alabama's statute. Hmm. So the central question, which essentially involved the location of these embryos, was a very clear statutory interpretation question, right? So they didn't have to go into the policy. They did a little bit of sort of IVF, and they actually involved some theology in their opinion itself, talking about the value that God places on every human being. Mm. But from a straightforward application of the law, there was no exception in the wrongful death of a child act. In other words, if it is... Intrauterine, right? If this is an unborn that's growing in a womb, or extrauterine, as the court wrote, there's no exception. In other words, when this was enacted, there is no difference between location. And in fact, it's very consistent with what we've seen and ourselves argued in the pro-life movement. Mm. A person's a person no matter how small Mm. and no matter the location. Thank you, Dr. Seuss. Thank you, Dr. (laughs) Seuss. This was one of those very straightforward applications where the court had to interpret the statute in front of them. They said there's no exception for location, so intrauterine and extrauterine and children are people for purposes of the wrongful death of a minor act. It was a very cut and dry opinion So the uh, the couples had argued basically that due to the negligence of the infirmary clinic that they had lost children, that they had a claim for wrongful death because these this was not personal property. These were people. There was no exception in the statute. And the Supreme Court agreed with them. They said basically you're right when it was enacted, when it was written, no one wrote in an exception saying except for
0: embryos that are
2: conceived through IVF. Okay, so
0: does this only apply to Alabama, you think, or could this ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court have further reaching effects outside of the walls of Alabama? Yeah.
2: In fact, there is a similar argument that's actually transpiring right now in Florida. And there is a similar case in Florida. And they just had oral arguments on February 7th on their own abortion amendment, because that, too, takes sort of a definitional approach to whether or not an unborn person, regardless of location, is still a child for purposes of their own wrongful death statute. So this could have very far-reaching circumstances. But remember, this goes to a state statute interpretation. Mm-hmm. So for purposes of IVF, for purposes of IVF, specifically in the state of Alabama, it is precisely limited. Okay. So it may have further repercussions. But remember, we're seeing a lot of abortion ballot. Amendments. We're trying we're trying to fight back a lot of these constitutional interpretations that expand abortion, that mm-hmm. create a state constitutional right to abortion. So there are really competing interests here. But this is a very limited decision that only applies to Alabama, though it might inform other states that have wrongful death statutes.
0: OK. And this is kind of the first in a little while, like you mentioned, we've had all these Pro-life ballot amendments that have failed. We've had all these very pro-abortion amendments that have passed. This is a little bit of good news for the pro-life yeah, movement. It and certainly it, is. It's been a minute since the pro-life movement we'll take had, it. had some good news. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll take this one. <laughs> this is the good news. All right. Well, stay with us. Up next, we're going to dive into some of Trump's legal cases because... Quite frankly, there's many, and I've been having trouble keeping track of where they all are. So we're just going to quickly run through them, break them down, let you know where they stand, and discuss one that could have significant implications for you as a voter. All right, so the House and Senate are out of session this week, and a lot of news, of course is continuing to focus on the 2024 presidential election without as much focus on what Congress is doing. But with that, with that focus on elections, there's also a lot of focus on Trump's legal cases and where they stand, the number of cases. So I I found this great Atlantic article that kind of broke down real fast. These are the cases in a snapshot. So I'm going to give you a super brief snapshot of where all of Trump's legal fights are R. He has somewhere roughly between like seven and f- 40-ish cases, depending upon how you count them. So there is, number one, there's a fraud case out of New York City where Trump and some of his family are being accused of inflating the value of their property holdings. Two, there's a defamation and sexual assault case out of Manhattan with E. Jean Carroll. Three, there's another Manhattan case alleging that Trump was involved in hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels. Four, there's the case revolving around Trump holding onto classified documents and storing them at his home at Mar a Lago. There is number five, election interference case out of Fulton County, Georgia. Then number six, the DOJ brought a case against Trump, also alleging attempts around election subversion. Seven, then you have this big case out of Colorado that alleges that Trump can't be on the primary ballot because he allegedly took part in an insurrection on January 6th and therefore is in violation of the Constitution and ineligible to be on the ballot. Well, that one case opens up a lot broader, and there's actually more than 30 states that are making, have made similar claims, voters in those states have made similar claims that Trump can't be on the primary ballot because of what happened on January 6th. And Sarah, this is the case that I want to focus on because this affects all of us as voters, right? We're we're all getting ready to go to the polls soon, especially if your state votes on Super Tuesday on March 5th. And the question is still hanging in the air of will Trump's name be on the ballot? And the Supreme Court has actually taken this one up heard arguments for it, and is going to be making a decision on this pretty soon, right?
2: Yeah. In fact, the briefing's done. Oral arguments are done. But Trump versus Anderson is going to be, I think, the biggest and most consequential election court ruling since Bush v. Gore. Wow. It will have such a significant impact because this isn't just a one-off in the state of uh, Colorado. Citizens there sued the state of Colorado to try to get Trump kicked off the ballot, Citing an unprecedented use of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits any official of the United States who has engaged in insurrection from holding a public office. There are quite a number of reasons why the answer to that question is that the Supreme Court of Colorado was wrong. But before I get to that, ultimately, this is one of 32 state efforts to try to disenfranchise American citizens from voting for the candidate that they want. Mm -hmm. Never before has this portion of the 14th Amendment been used to allow state officials to pick a federal candidate and kick him off a state ballot. It's unprecedented election interference, unlike anything we have ever seen. Let me just give the brief rundown of why this is a nakedly partisan, anti-democratic ruling and an attempt by the state of Colorado that's been a replicated in 31 other states. And I will say during oral argument to kind of set this up, it was very apparent. All of the justices, all of the justices had a problem with the state of Colorado's arguments. Hmm. Every single one of them, even the far left contingent of the court and KBJ, who is herself one of the newest members of the court, all seemed to say, listen, you know, think what you will about any particular candidate, you can't empower one state to decide what the federal elections hold for the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. I want you to think about the significance of that. In fact, I would not be surprised if the ruling we get from the Supreme Court is nine to zero. On this one, with all contingents of the court voting together. So here's why the Supreme Court of Colorado was wrong. First, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies only to individuals who are considered previously members of Congress. Remember, this came out of the attempts to quash the Southern Rebellion after the Civil War. That's when the 14th Amendment was passed and ratified. So this was used against people in the South who were rising up as members of the Confederacy. You know, we joke about the South will rise again. There was an attempt after the victory by Union soldiers on the South's part to reestablish the Confederacy. So that was its original public meaning. It only applies to an officer of the United States or a member of Congress, individuals who were elected, like former President Trump are not considered officials or officers. They are completely different for purposes of the 14th Amendment. Second, no federal court has ever convicted Trump. In fact, the Senate couldn't even convict him of engaging in an insurrection or a rebellion, meaning you have to prove, even for argument's sake, if he is an officer of the United States that he engaged in an insurrection or a rebellion, no federal courts held that. And even the Senate said, we're not going to impeach him. So, third, some really nerdy legal scholars like me <laughs> have asserted that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self enacting. In other words, you'd have to pass legislation to get Section 3 up and running. A little bit of history the Amnesty Acts of 1872 and 1898 is a matter completely ignored <laughs> by the court today, basically said. We would need to see legislation from Congress to actually get this piece of the Constitution to work right. Lastly, prior court rulings have held that Section 3 doesn't even exist anymore as a constitutional matter because the two pieces of legislation I just talked about, the Amnesty Act in 1878 and 1898, essentially eliminated it. They deleted that portion altogether. Those are just a couple, a sprinkling of reasons why the state of Colorado's arguments are going to fail. And I would not be surprised if we see a unanimous decision from the court. But again, this is the tip of the spear. I think it has the most consequence for the national election. It is the most important case for the election. All of these other various and sundry claims on fraud or, you know, Inflated business dealings or sexual misconduct, say what you will, those are attacking Trump in his individual business capacity or his personal capacity. They have nothing to do with the election. What this is an attempt to do is tar and feather a candidate who is going to be the presumptive nominee for the party based on all of the polling data we've seen.
0: And, Lauren, this is exactly why we have a lawyer. Yeah. On the show. <laughs> I was just
1: like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think this is going to be a tactic that people are going to use in the future to try to slow down? You know, I think it would not
2: be surprising if that happens. But if the Supreme Court issues what I anticipate will be a decisive win for President Trump and say this is such a patent violation of separation of powers, right? Right federal candidate for the presidency. One state doesn't get to say, oh, we're going to change the course of this election. So I don't think it's going to, it clearly hasn't prevented 31 other states from Mm -hmm. trying to do the same thing. They took a nod from Colorado. But a win against Colorado for the president is going to eliminate every other attempt by these state officials to take him off the ballot. Now, what will remain are these attempts to, I think, tar and feather him from a character standpoint, Mm -hmm. right? So the 91 criminal indictment that go to everything from fraud to misconduct, and of course those without delving into all of the details are all essentially poisoned by what we find out later are, for example, the judge's excessive fine, the abuse of discretion that he clearly expressed with a $335 million fine levied against the Trump Business Organization for inappropriate business dealings. I mean, that's going to be overturned on appeal. Then you've got Fannie Willis, who's involved in the criminal case. She's obviously in this inappropriate sexual relationship with the prosecutor. I mean, everyone who is involved in these cases, has got a stake against the former president. And I think, quite frankly, it looks like he's the Teflon kid so far. I have to tell you, it's a pretty aggressive and breathtaking attempt to try to prevent him from reestablishing himself in the White House.
0: Mm. Well, we have been covering this on the Daily Signal podcast. And if you're the kind of person that wants the very up to date, what's happening with each case, one at a time, make sure that you're checking out the Daily Signals Afternoon podcast because we're giving those regular updates. But, Sarah, thanks for breaking this down because it's wild. It wild is. to see what's happening. Really sure historic. Is. Stay with us because up next, we crown our problematic woman of the week. Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening, or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode.
1: That time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown
0: goes to the Collegiate Charter School of Lowell Women's Basketball Team. Yay! <laughs> it's amazing that they're problematic
1: for just existing and showing up to really play a, a game that yeah women haven't been playing you know for decades now
2: yeah of course and you know what's debilitating for my perspective being the mother of three teenagers and two of whom who are involved in varsity athletics right now I've watched so many of these videos of girls getting injured it's nauseating to watch but can you imagine the demoralization when these girls show up to play the game and they're looking across the court at a six foot one biological male with long hair tied back in a ponytail. And one after another, seven consecutive girls get injured. And yet they're still playing. They're playing through their injury and what I'm sure is their heartache and their frustration. But they wanted just to come to play. Mm. And it's so discouraging to see how this is recognized as equity or inclusive when in fact the girls for whom longstanding civil rights laws have existed to benefit them to guarantee their equality have unfortunately been tossed by the wayside in favor of some small and very vocal minority
1: and the adults who are supposed to stand up for these women are not doing so correct mm-hmm. that's
2: exactly it where are the grown-ups
0: it's tragic i've heard arguments made that if if female athletes want to see a massive shift on this, they should just refuse to play. Yeah, And I think there's credence to that argument. And then you also think about how hard female athletes work and, gosh, like to work so hard to reach a certain level and then to be faced with that choice of do I take a stand and sit out and protest Yeah, or do I keep playing like – that's a a hard choice and at the end of the day it's a choice that they shouldn't have to make that's it there should be adults stepping up but like maybe it'll come to that where there needs to be this massive wave of women that just say no we refuse to play against a male yeah
2: Yeah, and that that's an untenable choice but like you said Virginia it might be a necessary one we may see this in the Olympics this summer for all we know because many of these governing bodies have very patchwork rules Leah Thomas of course has sued World Aquatics because that individual wants to swim on the women's in the women's Olympic qualifiers for swimming. It's amazing to me. World Aquatics has towed the line. They stand strong on this. I hope all the governing bodies do. But we may see a lot of women decide it's not worth it. It's not worth it to get hurt, and it's not worth it for the morale-crushing experience of competing against a man who has natural advantages.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, wow. we want to say both kind of a heartfelt i'm sorry to the women of the Lowell women's basketball team that you've had to go through this stand strong be brave i'm glad that they decided to forfeit the rest of that game for their own safety i think we're gonna as we've talked about we're gonna keep this issue's not going away we're gonna keep seeing this come up so thank you sarah for being with us today it's always a joy to have you on the show you never told me that It's my favorite. Oh, you're a regular. (laughs) I guess you're both regular. (laughs) (laughs) Lauren, it is a joy to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Always. It's a joy to be here. With that, that's going to do it for today's edition of the Problematic Women Podcast.
1: Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share.
0: As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So take a minute, pull out your phone, leave us a five-star rating and review. We're across all podcast platforms. Find us anywhere. Listen to Lauren's voice in the background. Be persuaded. (laughs) Do it. Have a great week.
1: Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
0: It is a product of the Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram.
1: We produce problematic women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.